who among us doesn't enjoy a good mystery? And especially when solving it means that I get to bring out my competitive side, even if it's just me against the clock, I just can't wait to uncover all the secrets. So June's Journey is a game that is completely up my alley, and I think you'll love it too. In June's Journey, a hidden object mystery game, you play as June Parker, who's on a quest to solve her sister's murder and uncover her family's many secrets. Each chapter brings you deeper into the story, and it's set in the Roaring Twenties, so beyond uncovering clues, you get to experience the glitz and glamour of the time. June's Journey is definitely not a game I play mindlessly, which I love because I get genuinely invested and a lot of it is a race against time, so there's a little fun added pressure of trying to find the clues as quickly as you can in each scene. There are also tons of ways to customize the island that you're on, learn more about the characters, and then new chapters are added weekly, so you really can't run out of things to explore. So if you think you're up to solve this case, download June's Journey for free today on iOS or Android or play on PC through Facebook games. June needs your help, detective. Hi, I'm Madigan from Your Angry Neighborhood Feminist, a podcast that explores the world through a personal, intersectional feminist perspective. Each Monday, I bring you a brand new full-length episode covering something from a wide variety of topics. And then every Friday, come meet up with me again for a mini What's in the News episode so you can stay up to date on everything that's going on in the world. Check out Your Angry Neighborhood Feminist wherever you get your podcasts. And rage on. Realm Presents Book Burners, Season 3, Episode 18. The next morning, Manchu, Sal, and Perry followed Sifuentes through the rainforest in silence, stopping only for water and for Sifuentes to try to contact the Lagrima. No one answered. As the sun climbed overhead, a steep hill rose through the trees, covered with trees itself. The Southern Temple, Sifuente said. We're here. Manchu saw the archaeologist's pace quicken. He, Sal, and Perry followed suit. The trail took them to the left side of the temple and into a depression in the land between two more mounds. Now Manchu could see for himself the carved walls peeking out from the moss and dirt, the outlines of what were surely stone buildings that continued to the north. Something's wrong, Sifuente said. We should hear them now. There were no voices. Maybe they left, Sal said. Alacon would have told me, Sifuentes said. Something is definitely wrong. They found the first body a minute later, face down on the trail. It looked to Manchu like the dead man had tripped and fallen there and just needed to get up. Until they got closer and he saw the deep gashes in the man's back. Something sharp had been driven into him twice while he'd been trying to get away. The wounds bad enough that whoever had inflicted them must have been satisfied to let the victim stagger off. And so the perpetrator knew the wounded man wouldn't get far. That's Felix, Sifuente said. He was shaking. Manchu looked farther down the trail. Someone else was lying there on her side. Even from here, Manchu could see that her head was open. Sal had seen it too, 
She looked at Menchu and shook her head. Didn't say a word. Menchu knew what she meant. Whatever they found, it was going to be bad. Now Sefuentes raised his head and saw the second corpse. He cried out, a sound Menchu hadn't imagined his voice could make. Shh, Sal said. A flash of anger passed across Sefuentes' face. Menchu could see he was getting confused, starting to lose it. Menchu took a couple steps toward him. I'm sorry, but you must be quiet, Menchu said. Whoever did this might still be here. Oh, God, Sifuentes said. Whatever happens, Menchu said. We'll face it together, okay? Okay, Sifuentes said, but he didn't sound sure. Okay, Menchu said again, a little more firmly. Sifuentes cleared his throat and nodded. Menchu was a little more convinced. All right, Menchu said. Let's go. They found two more bodies as they headed into the main part of the temple complex. One lay on his back, staring up into the trees, his head half severed from his body. The other was curled on the side of the trail in a fetal position. There was a gash in his side that had laid him open like a sliced ham. Now, clouds of flies hovered all around. Munchu could see that Sal was keyed up, full of adrenaline. She was ready for whatever was coming. Harry was calm, his breath slow and steady. Maybe the angel was taking over. Sefuente shook harder, dropped to his knees, and threw up. They waited while he retched and sobbed. Then he raised his head and looked at Menchu. I know where to go, he said. He led them into a low stone building that seemed to be broken up into apartments. More bodies slumped against the walls, lying across doorways. At last, they were in a room that seemed untouched by time. The glyph-covered stone walls were bare. A slit in the wall admitted a beam of light that illuminated a woman lying on the ground, her eyes open. Blood had come from her mouth, run down her cheek, and dried already on the floor. There was a machete in her gut. It went all the way through her. Her own fingers were clutched around the handle. It seemed clear to Manchu that she hadn't been trying to pull it out. She was the one who had driven it in. There were two panels in the floor, and they were open. Through the panels, below them, was open sky, open pink sky. That's Alarcon, Sifuente said. That's my assistant. He started to cry. What did you find here, Sal said. She was a little too impatient, Menchu thought. Sifuentes was in no shape to answer any questions. I, I don't know, Sifuentes said, his voice scrambling over choking sobs. I don't know what this means, any of it. Oh, Teresa. Sal turned to Menchu and Perry. Do either of you know what's going on? I can guess, Perry said. Spare yourself, Sifuentes said. The sobs were gone. He wiped his mouth on his sleeve and dried his eyes. When he took his hand away, Menchu found himself staring into those familiar, pale eyes again. I have to thank you for bringing me a fresh body, Hanna said. She made Sifuente smile at them. I had run out. Once they figured out I was here and what I was doing, they would kill me before I could finish. I thought when I got down to the last person, this professor's lovely assistant, I would at last be left alone, but she was stronger than I expected. And look what she did to herself. 
It was all very, very annoying. They were a strong bunch, all of them. But this professor, thankfully, is much weaker. I'm almost out of time. Sefuentes' head tilted toward the ceiling. His eyes rolled back in his head, his mouth clicked open, and a guttural noise rose from his throat, modulated only by his tongue. Oh, crap, Perry said, a tone of recognition in his voice. He reached down and grabbed the handle of the machete that was in Alarcon and pulled it out. Sefuente stopped chanting and lunged. He caught Perry's hand, the one holding the machete by the wrist, then took the wrist in both hands, brought it to his mouth, and bit hard. Perry shouted in pain. The machete dropped to the floor. Manchu made eye contact with Sal. You go high, I go low, he said. Sal nodded. They both tackled Cifuentes and Perry, trying to keep them away from the open portal. For Manchu, the next few seconds were a tangle of wrenched limbs, elbows to faces, faces ground into the floor, the feeling of bones being strained, joints starting to be pulled out of alignment. This was no monster fight. There were no martial arts, no spectacular kills. This was a desperate scramble on a dirty floor, just three people trying to keep a man from killing them all and himself. The problem, Menchu understood, was that Hana didn't care what she did to Cifuentes. She threw him against them with more strength than Cifuentes had in him. A fist smashed into Perry's face opened the skin on three of the professor's knuckles. Then the professor twisted around and began choking Sal until she let go of him. Menchu had enough of a hold on Cifuentes' leg to pin him down. Hana made Cifuentes jerk hard enough to knock the wind out of Menchu and get away, though even Menchu heard the pop in the professor's hip when she did it. For a single instant, Cifuentes was free of all of his attackers, and Hana used it. She made Cifuentes flop away from them, both his arms and his one good leg, making up for his other unusable leg. He lurched toward the open portal. He was almost there. No, you don't, Perry said and caught the ankle on Cifuentes' bad leg. But it wasn't enough. Cifuentes made a final chant, and the air in the room began rushing toward the portal, dragging the professor into it, dragging Perry with him. They both fell in. The air stopped again. Manchu and Sal both scrambled over to the portal's edge. They could see Cifuentes and Perry falling away from them, still attached, still fighting. I'm not losing my brother like this again, Sal said. And I'm not letting you go alone, Manchu said. They both stood up fast. One of Manchu's hands found one of Sal's. They locked their fingers around each other's wrist and jumped in together. Four. Manchu thought he would be more frightened, but the fall didn't feel like falling. It was more like sinking. He looked at Sal, whose teeth were gritted, her eyes fixed on the figures below them. And then she remembered that she had done this before, and he took strength from her closeness. Perry and Cifuentes were still locked together, fighting. It seemed to Menchu that they were getting closer, though any sense of motion was faint at best. The luminous pink sky all around them got even thicker as they fell to wherever they were going. He allowed himself a quick second to worry about how they were going to get back out, return to the world, and looked behind him. To his surprise, he found that the portal they jumped through was right above them. He thought if he turned around, he might be able to swim back up to it. In time, some sort of terrain appeared below them. At first, it looked to Manchu to be an endless tangle of threads. 
until he realized those threads were bigger than he thought. They were tentacles. They were limbs. Whatever they were, they were coming up fast. He and Sal were now floating down among them. The pink sky was blocked out, and they continued to move through an orange gloom. Manchu and Sal could choose to land on any one of the limbs if they wanted to, but Perry and Hana were still fighting. They crashed into one of the thicker limbs, rolled off it, hit another one, kept falling. At last, they stopped, and Manchu and Sal caught up. Sefuentes' body was failing. Hana could push it far enough to be a match for Perry, but no longer for all three of them. This time, Manchu, Sal, and Perry didn't even have to communicate. Manchu took Sefuentes' right arm, Sal took the left. With Perry, they pinned the archaeologist down. Manchu put one hand on the archaeologist's wrist, the other on his shoulder. The way Sefuentes was moving, Manchu was pretty sure the arm was broken, maybe in two places. Sefuentes couldn't feel it now, he would later for certain. Sefuentes roared twice, then he fell silent. Where are we? Manchu said. Wouldn't you like to know? Hana said. Now that they were standing still, Manchu understood more clearly that the light was shifting because the limbs all around them were moving, nodding together, fusing, coming apart again, everything changing. When he looked down, he saw that the soil at his feet had extended several tendrils over his shoe, up his sock. Anna made Sefuentes grin at him. The land rose to meet us, it is alive. I called it and it came to get us. It's getting you a little now, if you didn't notice. It's harmless, but the bigger animals who are coming are not. You're gonna have to do what I say if you wanna live. More mind games. But Manchu was starting to see the power he had. You've tormented me so much, he said to Hana. But you've had every chance in the world to kill me, and you haven't yet. Why is that? Hana's grin faded. I'm not saying I don't want to live, Manchu said. I do so much. But I'm starting to think that you need me to live even more than I do. The thick limbs all around them began to rustle. Through the gloom, Manchu could see massive shapes moving toward them, getting closer. He could hear their slow, ragged breaths. They smelled tangy, like melting metal. You think one human matters to me that much? Anna said, with all the slaughter you've seen. I think maybe I do, Manchu said. How is that possible? Anna said. She was trying to mock him. Manchu could hear it in Sefuentes' voice, but the blows weren't landing. I don't know, Manchu said, but I think I can get you to tell me. Hey, Perry, take his arm. Perry moved off his legs and pushed down on Sefuentes' right shoulder. Manchu's hunch was right. The archaeologist was too weak to fight back. Manchu stood up and waved at the shapes moving ever closer toward them in the shadows. Hey, he said, we're here. We're here if you want us. You wouldn't commit suicide just to prove a point, Anna said. Wouldn't I? Manchu said. After what you've done to me, the things you've made me see. You took away my town and everyone I loved there. I have tried hard to move on from that, but I think you and I both know the truth. In the end, I don't really have anything to live for. Nothing is keeping me here. And the meaningful death doesn't sound so frightening to me. He took a step away from them. One of the shapes resolved itself into a massive creature with seven legs. 
a head with three mouths perched on a stalk that bent down toward the priest. Here I am, Manchu said. I am ready. Anna cried out, enough! Manchu stayed where he was. The portal was still open. Other shapes drew near. They were hooting to each other, unifying their voices in a rising crescendo, getting ready to charge. Manchu, Sal said. Take us back or let me go, Manchu said. Take us back or let the work of decades go to waste. Your choice. I've already made mine. The animals' voices tore into howling. Their feet shook the land beneath them. Anna sighed. Let me up, I'll take us back. The animals thundered forward as Hana barked out a series of words Manchu couldn't understand. The four people shot upward toward the portal. As they left, and just before the portal closed behind them, Manchu got a look at the creatures colliding beneath them. They collapsed into each other as if they were made of clay. Pieces flew off of them and stuck to what was left of the tangle of limbs around them after their stampede. And the parts that collided stayed together. They made new animals that were all legs and no faces, one leg and half a mouth, an eye dangling from a flap of flesh. They howled in pain, their prey gone, no direction left to go in, and the land still trying to consume them, as Manchu thought it must have since the day they were born. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every Factor meal is fresh, never frozen, and is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Plus, it's less expensive than takeout, which honestly was my go-to when I just couldn't or didn't have time to cook a proper meal. So whether you're hoping to cut down on spending, being more intentional with your meals, or just want to save time, Factor can help you get after your goals. Besides their meals, which I have to say, everyone has been delicious, they also have more than 60 add-ons to help you stay fueled and feeling good all day, like breakfast and midday bites. They've even got fresh pressed juices and protein shakes, and I've really enjoyed their variety pack of wellness shots. I love anything with ginger and cayenne. Factor is also flexible with their plans, so you can get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Head to factormeals.com slash burners50 and use code burners50 to get 50% off. That's code burners50 at factormeals.com slash burners50 to get 50% off. You've probably heard the name Mary, Queen of Scots, and maybe you know the importance of her legacy to the British monarchy. But how much do you know about her life and what she was really like? For instance, did you know that she preferred to have her eggs scrambled or that giving gifts was her love language? In my podcast, Vulgar History, we'll be talking about all that and more during an eight-part miniseries about the fascinating life of Mary, Queen of Scots. Vulgar History is a feminist women's history comedy podcast where we don't shy away from the messy, complicated lives of women from the olden times. Particularly with women in history, it's easier to use broad strokes to portray who they were. And it's like we forget they probably also had messy lives, complicated relationships, and maybe things weren't as black and white as they might seem in a textbook. But I'm dedicated to sharing the sides of the stories we don't always hear. And each episode is supported by rigorous historical research. Turns out there's really something about Mary Queen of Scots. So be sure to turn into my series about Mary Queen of Scots and check out the other incredible women I've talked about while you're there. You can listen and subscribe to Vulgar History wherever you get your podcasts and learn more at vulgarhistory.com.
The four of them lay in the bare room in the ruins of La Lagrima. Manchu, Sal, and Perry battered and out of breath. Cifuentes, possessed and broken. Still speaking with Hannah's voice, seeing with her eyes. This man has spent, Hannah said. You've made me take everything he had. First his crew, then his life. I would never have conducted myself in this way if you hadn't shown up so fast. I would have been patient, done what needed doing in the time it needed, but you made me rush. You can consider all this your responsibility. Sal, panting, caught her breath. I won't, though, she said. Excuse me, Anna said. I won't accept responsibility for what you've done when we came to stop you. Stop me, Anna said. A retching shudder came out of Sifuentes' throat that Manchu realized was laughter. Child, your every action for months has been in my service. Why do you think I have spared you? Your service, Manchu said. You have all played your roles well, Anna said. Is this about magic flowing into the world? Manchu said. Are you trying to hasten it? My boy, Anna said. To begin with, you have it backward. More magic is not flowing into the world. The world is moving into magic. To use an analogy, you might understand the tide is not rising. The land is sinking. The flaws in the world are starting to show. You mean from when it was made? Menchu said. Anna ignored him. Pressure needs to be released in some places. For many, many years, our goal was suppression, for which I cannot thank the Vatican and the society enough. I've been watching its work for a long time with great satisfaction. I've helped in my way when necessary to make sure the right people are involved. And Father Menchu, you have exceeded my expectations for you on every count. Until now. Because now you're letting magic in. Manchu said. There is no alternative. There is too much pressure from above on this world, this universe. Too much pressure from below. It used to be enough to keep the magic out, but now it's a question of releasing stress, of controlled bursts to prevent explosions. Do you understand? The Hydra, Sal said. Was a test. The magic needed to be let in, just enough to keep the borders stable between this place and the next. I was counting on you to help me contain it, and you did. We are not your puppets, Manchu said. Oh, child, Anna said through Sifuentes' ragged throat. He coughed again, couldn't stop for a minute. His face contorted just like the boys had in Flores. I have been trying to do the right thing, Anna said. I have been trying to save this world because I believe that the world is worth saving as it is. We put too much effort into building it to let it go now. There, Sal said, you said it again. You built the world. What do you mean? Anna smiled again. Where did you think all this came from? What? Everything, sun, sky, earth, forms distinct from other forms. Time, this beautiful odd arrangement where after always follows before. We made all that, a project, an experiment, because it intrigued us to try. And it's falling apart now while responsible parties dither on the correct course of action. Under pressure. I keep trying to save it because someone around here should do her job. 
blood leaked through her teeth. No matter how unpleasant, and now it gets worse. What are you talking about? Cifuentes doesn't have time to explain. Why tell us all this now, Sal said. Because, Hannah said, I have to change my plan. Since you're no longer cooperating. Cifuentes gave another long, hacking cough. That's it, Manchu thought. I've had it with this. He dropped to his knees, bowed over the dying man, and brought his face in close to look into Hannah's eyes. Listen to me, he said, and listen well. You have talked so much about your plan, about the greater good you think you're doing. You have talked about saving the world. But here, in the world, all I see from you is devastation, chaos, a slaughter. You have hurt and killed so many people. I might say that I've lost count, but the truth is that I haven't. I remember every single person that you maimed and destroyed in my sight. I remember the looks on their faces, their surprise, their terror. I remember how their eyes begged for mercy before they became yours, and how broken they were when you left. He put his hand on Sifuentes' chest. This man, he said, this smart, inquisitive, and compassionate man, his death is your fault. You and no one else have murdered him. And if he's just part of the cost of saving the world to you, then I say that the cost is too high. I say let the world change and let us deal with what's coming one person at a time. Let us see if we can save ourselves. Though I know you'll never do that. Sifuentes' body gave out a rattling breath. His eyes were still Hannah's. His parched lips parted and he showed his teeth. He was trying to smile. You're right, Hannah said. I won't. And as Manchu watched, Sifuentes' eyes darkened from Hannah's pale gray to his own deep brown. The expression on his face changed from Hannah's serene superiority to a twisting mix of pain and fright. The look of a man who knew he was about to die. I'm sorry, Sifuentes said. I tried to fight her. We all did, Manchu said. Pray for me. Sifuentes said. And then she did, as the professor took his last gasping breath. Five. Manchu knew Cardinal Fox wouldn't be happy to learn where he and Sal had gone, or about Perry's involvement, and he was right. Fox first lectured him over the phone in Flores, saying that he had been foolish to go on a mission in an unofficial capacity. He accused Manchu of doing so just to avoid the 36-hour clock, though even the cardinal understood that 36 hours wasn't enough time to get to La Lagrima unobtrusively. And in time, Fox also agreed that they couldn't just leave the archaeological crew dead in the jungle. It wasn't humane. Everyone had been trying to do the right thing. Do you think you stopped this demon? Fox said. Manchu had a small debate with himself, decided that the truth was best. No, he said, not yet. Even the cover-up story required only a small lie. That Cifuentes had not met them at the trailhead north of Flores, but given them instructions on how to get through the jungle themselves, including a stop at the camp they'd set up. So, in the official telling, Manchu, Sal, and Perry had come upon the crew at La Lagrima already slaughtered. No one alive to tell them what happened. 
It was an international incident, requiring Sansoni from Team 2 to work with both Mexican and Guatemalan authorities in delivering the Vatican's official positions on what had happened and why it had been Menchu who found the crew. Sansoni landed on the idea that the Vatican, in this case, had simply been lending a hand in an academic scholarly research, never imagining that anything so horrible could happen. There was no reason for the authorities on either side of the border to doubt the narrative. Meanwhile, police in Guatemala questioned Manchu, Sal, and Perry, who corroborated the official story. They only needed to be careful not to mention that Cifuentes had met them where he had, and that they'd spent a day and a half in the jungle together. That was easy enough to do. There was a half day of quiet tension, of Manchu holding his breath, while the policemen who interviewed them sought for and found the driver who had taken them to the end of the road in the first place to make sure their story checked out but it turned out that the driver agreed with their version of the story. Manchu suspected that maybe Sansoni had bribed the driver, but this turned out not to be the case. According to the detective, the driver hadn't been paying much attention at all. It was dawn, the driver was sleepy at the time, and he had given so many people so many rides that he was foggy on the details, beyond remembering that he'd given a priest a ride to the edge of the jungle a couple of days ago. The detective chuckled a little when he told Manchu that. It's like the beginning of a bad joke, the detective said. Yes, Manchu said, forcing himself to smile. It uh, happens to me a lot. I am often the beginning of a bad joke. Aha, he thought to himself. Aha. The story made the papers in Guatemala and Mexico. The official line was that the prime suspects were drug runners. Perhaps gangs had been using the site as a stop to move drugs north toward the United States. Maybe a shipment had been passing through when the crew happened to be there. In any case, the authorities said, the crew had seen something they shouldn't have and paid for it. A few journalists and public commentators cried foul. It didn't look quite like the normal gang violence, which usually left bodies only to send a message, intended to dig mass graves otherwise. What kind of message would a gang be sending by killing a bunch of academics? The public conversation about it generated heat, but no light. The authorities vowed to investigate further, and two days later, Manchu, Sal, and Perry were free to go. They had not spoken much since the jungle. There had been too much to do, and Hannah's last words, her explanation, if it had been an explanation and not just another lie, felt too big to address. The silence swelled between them like a blister after a burn. Sal tried on the hotel balcony the night before she left, where she found Manchu at prayer with a small glass of rum. Father, if it's true what she said about the world sinking, there was no second half of the sentence. It changes nothing. Before we save people, we will save people now. But if the angels made everything, she trailed off again, and he understood why, or thought he did. The consequences seemed too vast to comprehend, yet what did they mean for her life, for his? What does it change, Minshew asked. If she is not lying, she still didn't make the world. Only the part where we live. She calls herself an angel to confuse us. I don't know, father. Sal stared off into the hot, dark night. The way she talked sounded a lot like Genesis, didn't it? The world without form and void. Dividing dark from light, day from night, land from sea, before from after. What if we're just an abandoned science project? We're not abandoned. I know you believe that. It's not belief, 
he said. He's faith. It's a way of being, sheltered, grateful, humbled, and always striving. Toward what? If she's right, if we're really abandoned, then what is the point? Faith and work are how we make purpose, how we fulfill purpose. I hear you, she said, but he could tell she was still unsure. She did sit beside him, though, at the table, in the dark, while the moon rose. Manchu saw Sal and Perry off at the airport in Guatemala City, then took his bag and headed outside, out of the new part of the terminal, through the older part, and into the scrum of shouting cab drivers and relatives holding signs at the airport's exit. He waved down a friendly-looking man in a baseball cap and a plaid shirt who drove Manchu to a corner a half mile away where the local buses, old school buses from the United States, painted in bright colors and fixed with racks on the roof, were heading into the highlands. He boarded early, waited as the bus filled with women, men, children, while the ayudantes hauled their luggage and packages to the roof and tied them down with ropes and bungee cords. The bus growled to life in a cloud of diesel fumes and headed out of the city past apartment buildings, offices, and movie theaters, none of which had been there when Manchu was a kid. As the bus got out of the suburbs, headed up the highway, and gained altitude, though, the landscape changed. There were the mountains, Manchu remembered, the dormant volcanoes, the farms laid out on the floors and steep walls of the valleys. Half the people who had started out on the bus with Manchu got off, other passengers had gotten on. Now there were no more factories by the side of the highway, no more industry at all. At a crossroads, young men jumped aboard the bus and tried to sell snacks, nuts, dried fruit, candy, as fast as possible before the bus took off again. The ayudantes handed down luggage from the roof, hauled more luggage up. They were still standing on the roof when the bus headed up the highway again, climbed down a ladder, bolted to the back as the bus gained speed, and swung in through the emergency exit, the buzzer for which they'd disabled long ago. The speakers above Manchu's head blared out ranchera music. A group of women got on the bus wearing clothes woven in bright, dizzying patterns. Manchu looked and remembered. He knew from their clothes what town the women came from, who was married and who was not. Then, at last, there was that smell in the air, earthy like straw and dirt, rich and tangy. Manchu realized he hadn't smelled it since he left but had never forgotten it. It opened a door in his memories he'd kept closed. It felt like he was recalling everything and everyone, all of his childhood spent in these highlands. An old woman in a mud brick house playing marimba music on a battery-powered radio, nodding along by the light of a single candle. The taste of chicken and papillon. The rain pounding on the tin roof of the school, drowning out the teacher's voice. The images played in his mind, and he wept. Now the landscape was completely familiar to him. He looked at the mountains on the opposite side of the valley from the highway and realized he could have traced their profile from memory if he wanted. He was very close to the town where he'd grown up and remembered how to get back. He got off the bus where the highway intersected with the road he remembered as being dirt, paved near the highway with a thin layer of flattened garbage. But the road was paved for real now. He began walking until a pickup truck laden with passengers, but with room for him, beeped, and he handed the driver a coin and climbed into the back. There were electric lines running along the side of the road now. He knew where to get out again five minutes later, but he almost didn't recognize the place where he'd arrived. 
All the houses were different, newer, not a single one made of mud brick. All were cinder block and plaster now. All the streets were paved, and the town was alive, more full of people than it had been when he had lived there. He walked through the streets to the central plaza where the massacre had happened. It was still there, still the same cobblestones, though much cleaner. Where Manchu had stood when Hannah slit her own throat, a man in a t-shirt stood now talking on a cell phone. In front of the church, a man was selling tamales from a cart. A row of trucks was waiting to take people deeper into the countryside. People had come back after the massacre, after the war, Manchu realized. He didn't know any of them, but they had brought his town back to life. They had made it better. Yet, there was the church, just as it had always been. Parts of it had been repaired, other parts were heading toward dilapidation, but it was standing as straight as ever. The doors were open, and he went inside. He had remembered in an abstract way what Catholic churches in the Guatemalan highlands could be like, but being back, the details assailed him as if he'd never seen anything like it before. For even if the Spanish had subjugated the Maya, they knew they had to let the Mayan beliefs into the church. So Christian and Mayan iconography mixed on the walls, on the altar at the head of the church. So there was a second altar in the middle of the church, and while the official altar was cold and empty, the altar in the middle was filled with flowers and burning candles, and a few people were kneeling before it and praying in their native language. And Manchu could feel a stirring in him, something new being born. He didn't know what it was, but he understood that it was what he'd come for. A sense of freedom. A sense of how enormous the world had become to him. His own faith could grow to match it. Grow far beyond what he'd been taught in his training for the priesthood. Grow larger than the machinations of the Vatican that he'd been caught up in for so long. There was something much bigger out there. And then she wanted to find it. Father, a voice said. It was an old woman in clothes of brilliant colors from her head wrap to her dazzling dress. Are you new to this church? No, Menchu said. I grew up here. The old woman grinned. Welcome back, she said. You are listening to Book Burners. Created and produced by Realm, your portal to another world. Listen away. Hey, Jenny, have you um, ever heard of a vampire slayer? Do you mean the one girl in all the world with the strength and skill to fight the vampires, demons, and forces of darkness? I do. Oh, yeah, I've heard of her. Cool. My name is Jenny Owen Youngs. And I'm Kristen Russo. And together, we spent six years watching every episode of Buffy the Vampire Slayer one at a time, podcasting about each and every one. Never seen Buffy before? We will protect you. Our podcast is spoiler-free, so first-time viewers can listen along safely. Ever thought to yourself, I wish someone was brave enough to write an original song for every single episode of Buffy? Ho, 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 ho! Your search is at an <laughs> end, my friend, because we did exactly that. So if you've never watched Buffy, or if you're about to watch the series for the 14th time, come over and join us. Our podcast is called Buffering the Vampire Slayer, and you can learn more about it at bufferingcast.com. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.
Book Burners is created by Max Gladstone and written by Max Gladstone, Margaret Dunlap, Murr Lafferty, Andrea Phillips, and Brian Francis Slattery. Executive produced by Molly Barton and Julian Yap. Performed by Exe Sands. Audio production by Amanda Rose Smith with additional editing by Corey Barton. Original theme by Hashem Asadolahi. Featuring Jody Redditch Ferber and mixed by Justin Morrell. Cover art by Annie Wu. Executive in charge for Realm, Mary Asadolahi. Find more shows like Book Burners by following Realm on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or at realm.fm.